0: Coming up on this week's show, the big retro gaming announcements from E3.
1: One of the best multiplayer arcades is back. And we go deep into the demo scene with Howjob.
0: The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, very soon, we need to tell you more about Metal Slug, The Ultimate History, the first officially licensed book to document the history of one of gaming's most beloved franchises. Find out all about that and lots more on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 280, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott.
2: And me, Joe Fox.
0: And a very warm welcome to this week's show, where we take you back to the golden age of video games. It could be those... Endless summer holidays when you hopped on your BMX, went to your friend's house to play some California games on his Commodore 64, maybe had a sleepover and rented the latest SNES game from Blockbuster, or those Saturdays when you went to the seaside and played on all of those amazing arcade machines back in the day. We reminisce about all of that, and of course, we bring you up to date on the latest happenings in the world of retro gaming and technology as well. And I think it is important to say, we don't just cover gaming on this show. I mean, it is a big part of it, but obviously back then, there was a a lot more that kind of surrounded the games that we played. I mean, obviously, there were magazines. There was, you know, the early days of the internet that we've covered on this show as well, but also things like the demo scene. Now, I do appreciate that a lot of our audience, you know, are, are console gamers, um, including Joe, who's, you know, our resident console expert. Ravi, how would you describe the demo scene to Joe? Well, I, I think culture's the
1: right thing there. And uh, the mm. demo scene is it's it's basically like creativity and uh the coding for like art's sake and uh for 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 design's sake so you know you you you're not making a kind of aim in the end of it to make a game you're making something that's going to blow people's minds look amazingly impressive or have mm. some really cool music and there's like different aspects to it so you'll have somebody doing the artwork you'll have a team basically Uh, somebody doing the coding that you know other coders will look at and go wow but um, what we're talking about today is we're talking about the demo scene actually being recognized by UNESCO as part of culture and uh, important culture for Finland and Germany and this is pretty amazing because this is a scene that started with a load of kids and uh, sat in a big hall with their computers, you know, back in the days before the internet, they were bringing their monitors, they were bringing their setups. They were all sitting in a hall, they were all drinking, they were all <laughs> kind of going <laughs> mad and sharing games and videos and just like
0: doing stuff for the passion, really. Yeah, and I think that point that you made there about the fact that it's now been recognised as, you know, world heritage which is a massive deal. Because I remember, I think, you know, you and I, Ravi, we were back in the you know the glory days of the demo scene. You're probably like me, just kind of read about it because, you know, when I was like, you know, 12, 13, I couldn't exactly jump on a plane and travel over to Germany to go to a demo party on my own. Uh, we are just a bit too young for that kind of golden age of it. But I do remember reading about it because I remember getting a um, a magazine free with my Amiga 500+. plus. It was a, um, an issue of Amiga Format magazine they came in the box with it and opening that up and actually seeing these kind of graphical demos and some of them were like music discs where they'd kind of sampled you know songs that were in the charts and put these cool graphics with them as well and being really intrigued by it and thinking wow those look amazing and then you know back in the day you'd have to order them from a public domain library or dial up or, a bulletin or, or you get crack tros. so if, if yeah. uh, joe got handed a dodgy
1: disc or a cartridge at the beginning, you know, <laughs> you, you, you'd you pretty much see a demo then, a mini demo, which was a crack which was a kind of roots of the scene, really. Oh. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking to two amazing demo creators. And we're going to be talking to one that's involved in the art of coding as well, which is part of this initiative, which has managed to get demos recognized alongside huge cultural things. Like Stonehenge, you know, where you get heritage and preservation and they also organise the Evoke Demo Party. So we're going to be
0: talking to No Name of Haljob and Melkor. Yeah, now these guys are really interesting. They actually live in Germany. Um, Obviously, like you said, Ravi, they do events all over the place and have got a long history in the demo scene, so they're going to be on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, lots of new stories to get into this week. I mean, everyone, all the media's been going crazy about the announcements at E3 that, of course, was back on this year virtually, while everyone else is talking about, you know, PlayStations, big announcements for the PS5 and, you know, the new Halo game and everything. We focus a bit more on the retro kind of stuff. That's more our vibe, even though, I've got to say, Breath of the Wild 2 does look incredible.
2: I was literally about to say I don't know anything that's been announced other than the retro
1: stuff (laughs) (laughs) new monkey ball new monkey ball I
2: I did see the new monkey ball and I did see there's a new Metroid which is actually in you know the classic 2d kind of 2.5d style but i didn't know there was a new halo didn't have a good, didn't, <laughs> did not know that at all and i knew breath of the wild 2 was coming but i didn't know it had been announced properly
0: <laughs> well the big one that everyone's talking about in terms of retro announcements from um, nintendo's event that they did is um, obviously zelda turned 35 this year and a lot of people back in february when it celebrated it's um the legend of zelda's birthday well i you know Nintendo. Actually, going to do anything to celebrate, you know, such a a big milestone. But it turns out they're actually going to be releasing another anniversary game and watch. This time, featuring three
2: classic Legend of Zelda games. Now, this looks pretty cool. Yeah, so we're going to be getting this game and watch on November twelfth, apparently. So uh,
0: just in time for your Christmas money, just
2: in time for your Christmas shopping and your you know your Christmas gifts. But yeah, we're going to be getting the original Legend of Zelda on there. We're going to be getting The Adventures of Link on there. And then we're also going to be getting the Game Boy game, Link's Awakening, um, as well as a remake of Vermin, which was just one of the original Game & Watch games, which I think is like a juggling game. Um, is that like
0: a bonus game they're putting on then?
2: Yeah, they're just putting it on as a bonus game. But that would have been like the actual game that you would have got on a Game & Watch, you know, back in the 80s. But yeah, this this looks really cool. Um, for me, this has got more appeal than the Mario Bros. one that they did last year. Like, I know that was pretty cool and a lot of people hacked it and, you know, they got it to do a lot of cool things. But for me, I think you're getting more bang for your buck here. You're getting free classic Zelda games, you know, on this tiny little Game & Watch, which, you know, I mean, I know we've been able to do stuff like that, you know, get it on your phones and stuff for years. But for me, that's like blowing my mind that you can play like Link's Awakening and, you know, the original Zelda on here. I'm not too fussed about Zelda 2 on this little Game & Watch. But um, I think everybody's kind of worried that they're not going to make loads of them. Yeah, because that's classic Nintendo. Only make a couple of them, and you know, chuck them out, and then they, you know, kind of scarce. But to be fair, I think people were worried about that with the Mario Bros. One, and that's pretty easy to get a hold of. You know, pops up quite a lot in secondhand shops. You know, game and shops and a, stuff like that.
1: A new scene, essentially, this little game and watch mm. collecting scene, because I've seen yeah. people really into it, and also the hacking side,
2: um, as yeah. you mentioned, is quite developed now. So, I, I, uh, I, am, I imagine in November you know, kind of third week of November, one of our stories will be about how it's been hacked. Oh, it, it got <laughs> hacked
1: ages ago, Joe, They're they're no, using no. a thing called retro go.
2: No, I um, mean, there's out there's elder one.
1: Oh yeah. It might be based yeah. on the same hardware. Yeah. Probably. So based on probably, it on, probably is a, yeah. 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 It's probably just, they've put, they've flashed it with the new stuff and changed it to look green a bit. But yeah, um, true. <laughs> <laughs> that the, there's a thing called retro go, which is a emulator collector that they're mm. using, uh, like collection. And, uh, you can run some roms on that and you use this ftm32 uh programmer and yeah. maybe a bit of a bit of soldering required as well but uh, i've seen some mad stuff being run on the game and watchers. so it's pretty cool seeing this like little scene emerge who would have thought it, a, a new scene for a really old
2: handheld a, a new scene for a handheld that's going to be playing a game from 30 35 years ago <laughs> it's just crazy but it, it, it's interesting that they've you know, they're kind of missing the mark by like six months, the anniversary by like six, seven months. And it's kind of like what we said last week about the Sonic anniversary of yep. Sega. They've kind of missed it by like, a, you know, they're missing it as well by like a year or something crazy. So Sega
0: Nintendo still warring. Who can be furthest away from the anniversary? <laughs> yeah, who can be furthest
2: away from the anniversary? Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to this. It looks really cool. And like I say, you're getting four games on this one, um, which is pretty awesome. So I'm not too sure what the price will be, but I'm sure we'll find out in the next couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, and these things, I think, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, it'd be nice if they just, you know, put this out on the Switch instead as a download kind of thing. And, yeah, I mean, th- there's a good chance they might do something like that, I imagine, or maybe they already have, haven't been keeping up with the, the Zelda scene on the Switch, if I'm honest. But I think there is something about these. I mean, like you said, Joe, it is probably going to be made in, maybe not, you know, scarcity kind of numbers, but mm. it's not going to have, you know, they're not going to be making millions of these, They're I not, not going to be
2: pushing, like, 80 million of them, like the Switch. No. Do you know what I mean, they're probably going to make a couple hundred thousand or like a million worldwide probably.
0: yeah these are like collector's items really aren't they? they're for the yeah. hardcore fans
2: yeah and that, and that's exactly what I was about to say when you said oh they might put them online I think they are already on the switch at least I think the first one is at least but yeah they they are they're a collector's item that they're, they're there to kind of have fun with play with a little bit and then keep it in the, keep the box nice and tidy do you know what I mean they are the collector's items they're for, they're for the old school fans like us
1: yeah, and to, to be honest, I've probably got a factory now, just churning out game and watches. And they're like, yeah, "What should probably. we do next? Green for Zelda,
0: and yeah, you know, I, am, I imagine we we'll Donkey and,
1: Kong one next year, so yeah, Brown one,
2: Kirby or something." Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: and you know, who's going to buy them? People will just keep them in the in the packaging and never open them and put them on the shelf.
2: I am going to buy two. Keep one sealed and play the other one.
3: <laughs> uh, quick, quick
1: shout to my friend Dubious Engineering. He's actually three D printing uh, nice little cases like slip cases for the game and watches so you
0: can protect your screen and keep them in good nick. See that is quite cool actually because I mean I was looking at this form factor and even the Switch I mean it's um you know obviously in handheld mode it is still a portable system but mm. there are occasions when it does feel a little bit bulky. You know if you maybe just going on a car journey and he's sitting in the back seat not driving obviously. Um but it is nice to have something <laughs> kind of game and watch size isn't it. Well, like, he's driving <laughs> driving down the motorway
2: while he's playing Switch.
0: Why has he gone over that field? (laughs) But you know, something you can just put in your pocket. I think, you know, that kind of form factor is quite nice, I think. So, um, yeah, I haven't got any of these in my collection yet. But if they were affordable, I think, you know, for for the right games, I definitely would. Now, something I've seen this week that I do desperately want in my collection. And this is a re release. Actually, this is one of these one up, arcade one up machines of one of my all time favorite multiplayer games. Now, in the intro today, I was talking about those um, Saturdays when he went to the seaside. And I remember, you know, early 90s, me, my mum and dad and my brother, we'd always go to like places like Scarborough, Whitby. And the first thing I would always make a beeline for in the arcade was The Simpsons. You, you even did it game. when you were with me. We were at the National Video Game I was okay. about to say, you'd, you be were like, li- you'd be
2: lying for them at <laughs> Bloody Play Expo.
0: <laughs> Just one of the best multiplayer games ever. And the fact you can have four players on it, I mean, you know, we're a family of four, so I'd even drag my mum on to be Marge, obviously. <laughs> um, playing with a Hoover. <laughs> it was a different time. Um, but, I mean, it was, even though a lot of kind of licensed games turned out to be very poor back in the day, it was a really high-quality arcade game. And now you can play it at home with the Simpsons classic video game cabinet from arcade one up.
2: Yeah, this looks absolutely awesome. So this is going up for pre-order on July 15th. So about a month away. Um, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. No, it's going up for pre-order at $600, um, which I believe is about two, $300 more than the usual arcade one up machines. However, They're usually three-fourth scales, the arcade one-ups, whereas this one, they've just said, is slightly smaller than the normal arcade machine. So I'm not too sure how big it's going to be, but it looks pretty big from the pictures. But it's going to be coming with the riser, which are usually, you've got to buy separate, but it's going to be coming with a a matching Simpsons riser, so it makes it nice and tall for you. And also, which I love what they have done, is it is going to be the four-player cabinet. You know, it comes with the big four-player joystick on the front. You've got to do that, haven't you? It's got to be. It's Simpsons Arcade. It's got to be four-player. I think they've released a couple in the past where you could buy the two-player one or the four-player one of, like, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cabinet. But this is the four-player one. And also what's really interesting is they haven't announced what it's going to be, but there is going to be another game on there. Um, Because most of the time when Arcade 1 updo these, they release, like, three or four games on there. So it'll be based on, like, it's the Mortal Kombat 2 cabinet. But it's actually got Mortal Kombat 1, 2, 3, and Ultimate on it. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. there is going to be another Simpsons game on this, but there wasn't any other arcade Simpsons games. So, no, you know,
0: there's obviously Bart versus the Space Mutants are home games and
2: yeah, Bart, um, Bart's, Bart's Nightmare. Nightmare. And, yeah, yeah, Bart versus the World and stuff like that. But they're not the best games. You know, the Simpsons arcade was always kind of renowned as being the best Simpsons game, the, at least the best classic Simpsons game. Um, so, I'm interested to see what that'll be. When it does get announced, I imagine we'll probably find out on the fifteenth of July. But it's cool because this is actually probably the only legit way of playing the Simpsons Arcade game now because they took it off the Xbox Marketplace about gosh about ten years ago, didn't they, or something? Yeah,
0: I bought it on there when it first came out. Um, yeah, yeah, probably about two thousand seven. I think it came on there mm. the early days of Xbox Arcade. I think it was one of the first games they ever bought on there. You know, obviously because yeah. I love the game. But yeah, and this does look like as well. I mean, it's got the you know obviously the arcade cabinet is an imitation. Of the original yeah. and it was always an arcade that just stood out you know when you yeah. went to an arcade and you saw this obviously because it had that kind of that bright blue color and it had the simpsons characters all around it but because it was such a big cabinet you'd normally find it on the end of rows of arcades wouldn't you not kind of in the yeah. middle
2: yeah you, you know what i've never even thought about that but yeah you are right you'd always find it on the end or as as now when i go to skegness or you know Clefops. ops it's usually there in the corner <laughs> on its own you know they've um, been
1: sma- they've been smashing these out like they've really had some good ones like you mentioned mortal combat uh, teenage mutant ninja turtles and outrun, and now the- outrun as well um, yeah, killer yeah. instinct now the simpsons like what 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 do you think's going to be coming up next are they going to run out of
2: arcades? <laughs> I, arcade I really really want them to i really want to see some you know, uh, light gun ones from them. That's what I really want to see. Mm. You know, well, that that'd be tough, won't it? Because it'd, they're, it'd all be tough.
1: Those, um, screens,
2: they're all on those screens, aren't they? Yeah, they're on you know flat screens and stuff. So it'd be tough for them to make it. But what I really like about this is they've even got. Obviously, it probably won't be functioning, but they've even got like down to the coin. The coin operator at the bottom, and everything goes on there.
0: Imagine that you come around the house, Joe, and I'm like, you have to put 20p in first before you ever go. <laughs> yeah,
2: You're on the door with like a, you know, that. Like, oh, come on, then it's a pound skin, and it's 20p <laughs> you have to have a play. Um, but what I really love is they have used the original artwork, you know, which was on the original, and it's like the proper 1991 Simpsons. So you have Bart's even in his blue outfit rather than his his red outfit, what he wear, you know, his orange like t shirt and stuff. So it's the proper classic. You know Simpsons when they still had the white school rather than the yellow school yeah. and everything. Um, crazy Taxi. That's my guess. Yeah, oh, yeah, that would be a good one. Crazy Taxi. Um, but what I also like, what I heard, which I also like, is making me feel really old. Is this is to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the game as well? That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs>
0: Cause you're right. It was quite an early Simpsons game. I mean, it must have been in development for like a year before it came out, I imagine, yeah. or you know, quite a while before. Because well, Marge, Marge has actually got her. Uh, her bunny rabbit ears in this. I was literally about, about-
2: <laughs> I was about to say that. It's I forget the name of it, but it was Matt Groening's other like creation, wasn't it, with the rabbit things with the ears? And if mm. Marge gets electrocuted in this, you can see her rabbit ears in her hair. And
0: Yeah, because that, that was a joke, wasn't it, that Marge's hair was so big that it was concealing big rabbit ears, but obviously they decided not to go with that in the in yeah. the TV and show is yeah, Smithers Smithers different in this. Uh
2: I believe he I, I believe it is the the Smithers we know. In this one, because it was only the first season where Smithers has a different complexion, um, okay. which randomly changed. <laughs> yes, I mean, just for pure nostalgia,
0: that game just brings back so many mem- memories seeing that arcade cabinet. But today I still think it is one of my favourite multiplayer games. And I know when we've done live streams in the past, you know, or they were our controllers, even just playing it on Xbox Live. Still grateful mm. and said, so oh, yeah. I haven't got an arcade cabinet at the moment, but as I've mentioned on the and show, I, I have a garage either. converted. And
2: we got together, didn't we, at the weekend and we were talking about mm. this cabinet. And I was saying, you know, the amount of times I've said, like, oh, I really want to buy that. And I'm just like, oh my God, I really want to buy it.
1: Well, what, what you guys need to do is you both need to do it at the same time. And then your missus will be like angry. Like, they won't be like, oh, Dan's got an arcade cabinet. They'll be like, Dan and Joe. And we'll, just, kinda... we'll, we'll just
2: claim that somebody sent them us arcade one yeah. up <laughs> <There you go. laughs> they sponsored us
0: <laughs> if you're listening arcade one up and you'd like to uh, save our relationships and <laughs> feel free to donate a couple to the podcast <laughs> but yeah and it's in all seriousness no this this looks incredible and something i definitely want to get my hands on it's just uh yeah what an incredible game so can't wait to see what they do next keep up the good work now maybe you've managed to get your hands on a playstation 5 <laughs> i've been trying since december last year Still haven't got one. But maybe when you do get your hands on one, you think that doesn't look retro enough. Well, this is really cool. This is a PlayStation 5 that has been turned into a gorgeous wooden retro gaming console. Now, you remember back in the day, I mean, there wasn't a load of wooden gaming systems. I do remember, obviously, the late 70s, that kind of wood grain look was everywhere. And obviously, we had the Atari 2600 Woody Edition. You know, they were made of wood, I believe, or just look like wood grain. Um, But you don't really get many wooden systems these days. But this is a YouTuber, and he's called DIY Perks, Matthew Perks, who's actually managed to transplant the innards of a PlayStation 5 into a case that, looking at it, you wouldn't even think this thing was a games console, would you?
2: He's done such a good job of this because it actually looks modern. But with that, like you say, that wooden 70s wood grain effect. But this isn't, this is something I'd expect to see in my dad's house. Like my dad's a sucker for like, you know, these kind of like modern technology, little stylish, you know, boxes. Like I wouldn't, if I saw this like under my dad's TV and he just turned around and said, oh yeah, it's like a digi set top box, but it's just like a nice one or something. Like I wouldn't question anything he told me this was, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like.
4: It's
1: got carbon fiber on it as well, which has kind yeah. of added to the look. So you've got like the natural style and the carbon fiber. Uh, I think you're right about the look as well. It's something like the tech mom would love. But um, yeah, <laughs> I also think the ventilation on there. That I've heard massive problems about the PS5 melting and all of that. And it actually looks like, even though it's made out of wood, it you know, obviously flammable material, but um, it's it's got the vents at the back and at the top and it looks like it's actually better ventilated than the uh, PS5 original case. What
2: I find interesting is how much smaller he's made it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I watched the video and he, he took it apart and he was surprised at the actual PlayStation 5 itself, you know, you know once you take the case off and stuff, it's quite, I wouldn't say it's small, but it's a lot smaller than what you would think. And it's actually the cooling system on the back, which is actually taking up most of the space. And then also it is kind of like a weird shape. So what I liked about it is he he put some legs on it to make it stand flat because obviously the, the PS5 doesn't, it looks better, kind of stood, stood upright, stood up doesn't it? It looks like it would wobble. Yeah. yeah it looks weird on its side, doesn't <laughs> it? Yeah? So um, yeah, it was interesting, you know, that it, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a PS5 Pro put it that way because i don't i don't don't really like the look of the original ps5 so he's put my wooden amiga
0: laptop to shame (laughs) (laughs) well this thing is made out of um american dark walnut hardwood and yeah he's put those legs on these are um conical metal legs he's got on there as well to me it kind of looks like it should be like a, a late 1970s valve based amplifier or something you know mm. it looks like something it's got a really cozy look to it i think hasn't it yeah. Like yeah one of
1: those uh coffee warmers or something that you have it you know you put it on
0: the <laughs> fan
2: vents you have it next to your bed and then you can get a ps5 coffee it, it, in the morning you know what i think you've just hit the nail on the head there as well like it looks like when you just said it, it's an amp there it looks like something that you would just connect your phone to and play music out of you know just a speaker
0: <laughs> with the added bonus that if your house gets burgled and uh, you know PS5s are scarce at the moment they probably wouldn't take that
2: yeah true well, they might do I don't know what this is I'll <laughs> tell <take> you that <laughs>
0: this looks rare and expensive yeah well, so, it is. Uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> if you want to get
0: hold of one unfortunately there is only one in the world um, but I will link up his video in our show notes at the retrohour.com if you've got the skills to make your own which uh, I don't think any of us have unfortunately now of course we have got lots of anniversaries at the moment and uh, this one. Quite an obscure game, actually. I know you're a big Castlevania fan, Joe. Have you ever played Rondo of Blood?
2: I have. Uh funny enough. Once again, I think it's the 30th anniversary of Castlevania Rondo of Blood. Um, and this is coming to graphics 16. So just a little bit of history about Rondo of Blood. It was a graphics exclusive game, which was actually the prequel to Sympathy of, Sympathy of the Night, which was kind of like the big Castlevania game, the first kind of Metro metroidvania castlevania game but we never got a official western release of this game uh, it only ever came out in japan and then we did get a snes version of it it was a uh, port of it you know a little bit of a demake it wasn't it wasn't the same game essentially you know it, it was a complete you know back in the day when you'd get a mega drive game and a snes game and they were and they were the same game but they were different games do you know what i mean it was very a different sub- port. Yeah, yeah, it was a different port. It was very much like that. Um So this is, you know, it, it's funny because the article does say this is the first time we're getting it in the West, but interestingly, there was actually a PSP port of it in 2007, and you can get it on the Turbo 16 Mini and the PC Engine Mini and the Core Graphics Mini, Um the original version. And the PS4,
0: it. it was on the. And it was on the PS4. The
2: yeah. So so it's interesting. It's saying it's the original. You know, it's the first release of it. But I guess it's the first release of it. On Turbo 16, so we're actually getting it as a physical Turbo 16 on disc game from Limited Run Games, and this was actually part of an E3 announcement by Limited Run Games, which I which I love that like you know retro is so big still that it's making it to E3. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So we're going to be getting this later on this year. It doesn't say when we're going to be getting this, but it just says later this year. And Limited Run are an American company, but you can order from them. I've ordered, funny enough, I ordered Castlevania for the Switch uh, from them a couple of months ago, and it was like $15 delivery. You know, it was a bit of a treat for myself, but it wasn't wasn't an arm and a leg, do you know what I mean? So we will be able to get this in the UK if you do want to get it. But yeah, I think that's really cool for the collectors, you know, to actually, if you've got a TurboGrafx-16, to actually sit down and play a proper English translation of this classic Japanese game, which has been kind of like, I don't want to like a legendary game, for like the last like 30 mm. years all these different obscure ways to try and play it it's now like 30 years later you can actually sit down and play it on your TurboGrafx-16 in America or in the UK
0: you know what I think's cool about it as well is I mean obviously limited run games have done stuff for you know the Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo but mm. when they're getting into systems like this you know slash mm. pc Engine you know the more obscure systems that you know I know it was big in parts of the world but not over here when they start paying attention to those kind of niche platforms. I think that's very interesting.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think, you know, it kind of comes back to what we're saying about with the Legend of Zelda game and watch. They're doing it for the fans. I can't see them being like, oh, this is a quick book. This is a quick cash flow because of they don't, with limited run, they don't make loads of them. They make like 5,000 of them or like a thousand of them. Do you know what I mean? So this really- Hence their name. Hence their name. Yeah. So this really will be limited. And, you know, to make that few of them, I can't imagine the profit margin is massive. Do you know what I mean? Because they're not unreasonable prices. They're just like new game prices, like fifty dollars or forty dollars. Or you know, I think my Castlevania for the Switch was like thirty-five dollars. So they're not. It's not silly money. You know, they're not putting them out like there's only a thousand of these and it's a hundred dollars or a hundred and fifty dollars. Like I genuinely feel like they're doing it for the fan. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to this one.
0: I wonder how obscure they'd go. Would they do like a, a repressive? Alfred Chicken for the Amiga CD32. I wouldn't no put one it past would. them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you, right. still, no one would. <laughs> They're I still selling copies of that, the original <laughs> one of that. Trying to I, shift them.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, they've done like Corpse Killer and, you know, they've done a lot of like, you know, Sega 32X games and Sega CD games and stuff like that. So obviously, I don't think this is the first Turbo Graphics game they've done. I think they've done a couple of others already. Um, mm. But yeah, that would be funny if they started doing Amiga and... The 3DO and the CDI and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Get that (laughs) Zelda
0: game on the CDI repress. Yeah, oh, that would
2: be amazing. Nintendo would probably stop them straight away. (laughs) Yeah, we Pl- know what, what was about. that? Pl-
1: plumbers don't wear ties. I'm sure that. Yeah, plumbers work.
2: don't wear ties. Limited run.
0: <laughs> I'd buy that. <laughs> so yeah, very very cool. And of course, uh, if you want to get hold of that, release date is coming. But we'll keep an eye on it. And of course, we'll put everything we know in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we deep dive into the demo scene, time to talk about this um, Super Mario Kart, the original game. Now, a lot of people find the original. Mario Kart on the snares a bit of a tough play these days. I must admit, I did revisit it about probably five years ago. So I got an EverDrive, but obviously it couldn't do the Super FX emulation like the early EverDrive. So I actually bought one of the original carts of eBay. Um, going back to it after playing, you know, Mario Kart 8, for example, it's definitely dated in many ways, but there's no denying that obviously it was again that started the series. And it was revolutionary. I don't know if you guys were fans of it back in the yeah, day. Yeah, I was. Yeah like massively
1: ahead of its time. I remember when it Mm. came out, people's minds were blown. It was uh, really fantastic. And uh, just the way that it worked as well, being able to see all the characters on the track and um, kind of the progression, you know, where you were in the race, as well as having that kind of flaw that they had and the way that it was drawn,
2: it was beautiful. I think what always froze me, it's not so much the graphics or anything like that, because obviously we're all retro gamers, you know, hence the retro hour, but... What always took me out of it when I go back to it is I always forget that it only it's only half the screen, like you said, mm-hmm. Ravi, the bottom half is the map with you know where you are on the map and what position you're in and everything, so that always really took me out of it so when I tend to go retro, I tend to go to mario sixty four or double dash for the gamecube but yeah this is this is really interesting, so as part of the giga leak, somebody has hacked it and restored the uh, level editor for it haven't they
1: yeah, so what happened was uh, they basically found. A prototype build mm. um from 1991 yeah and that had the code for a level editor in there and uh the oh, level wow. editor allows stuff like 3d objects like pipes and stuff uh mm. monty moles and cheap cheap I'm, I'm not sure what those are but they were probably the enemies and stuff yeah um was that the little mole that popped up it
2: must be monty Moles, the little mole that jumps out and i think the the cheap cheeps. I was gonna say that they're fish, but they're not fish. I think they're chickens. <laughs> yeah. Well <laughs> what happened was uh
1: this, this guy, Mr L three one four, um, mm. worked on cracking uh the, the the software and the software is actually super famic on DOS and mm-hmm. um that was an in house operating system which was used for SNES development. So um yeah. it kind of allowed you with a keyboard and a mouse attached to the SNES to to then write data onto the console. Um, So, you know, you wouldn't use like a PC as like a lot of these systems had, you would just be doing it directly on the SNES. So he managed to unlock this mode, kind of rebuild it. And it looks really cool, this level editor, because as it's all above view, you can basically zoom into sections of it. And it's also split screen like the game is. And uh, it looks really good fun. I'm sure... It's going to get turned into like a, you know, Mario Maker style levels and there's going to be all kinds of madness going on. And like, I know you guys rag a bit on the uh, on the kind of playability of Mario Kart now, but um, when it came out, it was like the fastest thing around with that oh, many yeah. players being able to play on it at the time. So, yeah, it does, it does kind of look dated now, but I do remember when it came
0: out, it was like, oh my God, what is this? You know? Well, there is, if you look at the, uh, I'll link up the Kotaku article that kind of goes in depth into this. And someone does point out in the comments, and I do remember seeing this, actually. There is a free Mario Kart editor that came out around 10, 15 years ago called um, Epic Edit. You can download and you can edit every track on there as well and make your own, you know, if you're playing on emulation, that kind of thing. But this, I mean, what's cool about this is this was obviously Nintendo's in-house Editor that I imagine they used to develop the game with back in the day, but can you imagine how different? I mean, God, the amount of time I would have spent on that game if, like, you know, as a as a ten year old or whatever, me and my brother could sit there like making our own courses. That would have been amazing if they bundled that with the game. Now
2: that would have been ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah, that would have been mind blowing.
0: And a um,
1: uh, street racer, do you remember that as well? That was yeah, like, I remember street yeah, racer. Yeah, we, we yeah, have, have Mev Dink on the show, and he was he was like, oh, we can have. I think it was eight players on there or some
0: some mad amount of players. Yeah. yeah, so looking forward to seeing what the community does with this. Another big find from the Giga League. It does make you wonder, you know, how, how long we're going to keep finding things out from that huge collection. Obviously, we know the way it was kind of acquired is a bit dodgy, but can't deny how fascinating it is seeing all of these uh, I, f- I feel like we, leaks. we have
2: something from the Nintendo Giga League like every week at the moment, and it's been going on <laughs> for like months. So I'm sure there'll be more.
0: It's taken him that long to trawl through it, hasn't it? Since
2: the leak, you know, (laughs) keep
1: finding
0: things. 30 years from now, I'm sure they'll still be finding things in that collection. So uh, very, very cool indeed. Now, last week's show, um, we're a bit too busy to fit this in. Actually, we ran out of time, but we have been doing gaming shops of the week recently. um, And we're back on board with this as well. The idea is that if you've got a shop that you go to, a place where you go to buy your retro games your retro systems, rather than buying them off eBay or Amazon or places like that. We want to show them some love and big up those remaining retro gaming shops all around the world. Give them some free advertising on the show and we want you to tell us why your local retro gaming shop is so amazing. So no, you guys, I still haven't been out retro gaming shopping since everything reopened. You guys seem to be doing it every other day at the moment.
2: Uh, I did it for my birthday last week and that's probably about the third or fourth time, probably the fourth time I've done it in the last kind of like, two or three months so I'm definitely getting it in and definitely spending too much money but yeah Ravi you've got a really unique retro gaming collection at the moment haven't you?
1: Yeah I'm I'm, I'm going for like PC titles and uh, the problem is I'm going too often so all the charity (laughs) shops I've rinsed them all out now and it's uh, all just FIFA (laughs) now
0: I need to wait for them to restock. But obviously we love, you know, proper, dedicated retro gaming stores. So if you've got one nearby that you go to, it could be anywhere in the world, drop us an email, show at the retrohour.com. We want to give a shout out to your local retro gaming shop. And uh, this week, we've got a mention from a gaming shop in Scotland. Yeah, so this is in Kilmarnock, Scotland.
1: And uh I- I'm going to say this wrong, aren't I? Orangeshire? Ayrshire? Ayrshire. I'll say God. Um So... At 2000DC said, uh, please give a shout out to the newest retro gaming and collectible store in the deepest, darkest end, yeah. <laughs> Forgotten Worlds, it hasn't been long, but it's a treasure trove of important, imported games and collectibles. And it has arcade cabs as well. Totally awesome. So looking at this place, it looks, it looks like a warehouse.
2: I was going to say, I'm looking at the pictures of this and I'm like, is that a warehouse? Like is that is that a shop? It's like in the middle of a field, but I'm assuming you go in and it looks like it's just shelves and shelves of retro games and boxes of retro games and then like like you say there's like a back room full of like wrapped up arcade machines and they're all like Japanese ones and stuff.
1: Yeah, so it's off the uh, A735 and it it seems like they've got a Facebook page. It's in unit 23 as well, so it's it's like a a proper kind of uh industrial one That's but awesome. it's a huge warehouse set up by a collector and mm. they've got absolutely everything there they've got like ColecoVision games atari games tons of box systems all for sale lots of kind of sealed stuff as well playstation collections dreamcast and tons of arcades to play so this looks like a kind of secret little haven in scotland that you can go and just pick up some games, and uh, play on some arcades
0: as well in the in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I'm looking through their pictures on their Facebook. Boxed original Xbox there. Boxed Atari Jaguar for sale as well. Um, limited Halo edition Xbox. They've got loads of systems here, and those arcade machines look amazing. I mean, I imagine the fact that these are all wrapped up, these must be for sale then. Yeah, well, I think that's him
1: actually setting up, because like you right. said, it's a new place, so... There's not that much photos of it at the moment. Um, they've just got their Facebook page, and uh, it seems like it's newly been established.
0: Well, it looks amazing. Forgotten Worlds, it's called. So if you want to check that out, um, I'll link up. Have they got a website at the moment? Uh, no, it's just the Facebook. Was it that new? At the moment. <laughs> right, yeah. OK. I I'll I will put a link to their Facebook page in our show notes. So um, it is amazing, especially to see. I mean, you know, we've talked about retro gaming shops that have been there Twenty, thirty years when new ones are springing up, especially in, you know, the difficult climate that we've got in terms of retail right now, that is a big investment and a big commitment. So you definitely need to show these guys some support. Um, Forgotten World's up there in Ayrshire in Scotland. I put a link to their Facebook page in our show notes at the retrohour.com. And, of course, do let us know about your favourite retro gaming shop. You can do it on our socials, at retro Hour UK. If you want to do it on Twitter or our Facebook page, drop us a message on there. Our Discord, you can do it, or email show at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. And, uh, you know, we say it all the time. These are books that are – I think these books are as collectible as the games.
2: Yeah, absolutely. These books are absolutely beautiful, these books are. And uh, this week, we're actually going to be talking about one of my favourite game series, uh, Metal Slug. Metal Slug, The Ultimate History by Bitmap Books. Yeah, now
0: this is the first officially licensed book to talk about the history of, I mean, you know, it is one of gaming's most beloved franchises. Were you a fan of the original game? Also, it came out back in 96, wasn't it, the original Yeah, Metal it was Slug? like
2: 95, 96. But yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Metal Slug. Um, I've got them all... one of those games where all of them have come out on every single console you know since coming out in the arcade and stuff like that and it was only actually last year that i played through like all of them on xbox live and literally got like a thousand points achievements on all of them i absolutely loved them so i absolutely love and adore this book as well and what's really cool about this book is it's obviously the complete history of like every single Metal Slug game that came out. But it's also loads of exclusive interviews with some of the creators of Metal Slug and some of the people who worked on the original games, as well as loads of original artwork and also unseen artwork. So never before, you know, behind-the-scenes artwork, which people haven't seen before.
0: Yeah, because SNK have actually given them access mm. to
2: their archives. Yeah. So you got, you know, this really
0: high-resolution concept artwork mm. and illustrations and stuff, you know. You can see the original designs of the game and how it changed as well. And there's also stories in here as well, including the truth about Metal Slug Zero, that was uh, the version of Metal Slug that existed before Marco and Tama. Oh,
2: I didn't know about that. So Very you only controlled
0: a tank oh, in that game okay. as well. okay, so. yeah, that's
2: cool. That's cool.
0: Yes, yeah, so you can see the roots of the game as well. So if you're a fan of it, you've got to check it out. 452 pages. Like all their books, it's incredible quality. High quality, lithographic print, the special link as well to make the images just jump off the page. So if you want to check that out, of course, really appreciate your supporting our sponsors. You know, they're what keep this show going. Have a look, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this book, Metal Slug, The Ultimate History, and see their full range of incredible retro gaming books on their website at theretrohour.com. Now, we do have a patron that we run for this show as well. And the reason that we have a patron is really just to cover the expenses of doing this show. Because, you know, we love doing the podcast each week, but it is nice if we don't have to pay to do the show ourselves as well. There's always ongoing costs too. And obviously, we're not all take, take, take. We give back as well. Now, obviously, the Retro Hour podcast, it's an independent show. It is just us three gaming fans who love talking about retro games every
2: week. We're not owned by a big media company or anything. And you know what? Funny you should say that. It was only about a year and a half we've ago. We've just
1: been bought out. No, no, we, no, we <laughs> haven't been bought out,
2: but about a year and a half ago, we won't say who, but we were approached. And, you know, no, we're still independent, aren't we? So, you know, <laughs> and it is thank you to our, our Patreons that we've been able to stay independent. And, you know, and like you say, we're not, we're not just, you know, take, take, take. We do like to give back. So, Dan, what do we give in return? Well, this weekend, we're going to be doing our
0: monthly patrons hangout. That is always one of the highlights of the month. That's where on Sunday evening, eight PM, we get we get together on Google Meets and we just talk about so much on there as well. It's not always gaming, is it? It can be anything retro. We were
2: talking about um, video nasties and you know VHSs last time, weren't we? We were all talking about RoboCop and Fright Night and stuff like that. You know, like you Kung say, it's not just retro movies. gaming. Kung <laughs> Fu movies, yeah, absolutely. And there's
0: always a bit of a. You know, collection porn Mm. moment as well, especially when we get new people on. It's like, oh, it shows your collection then. That's always fun. So if you'd like to join us for that, we're going to be doing it on Sunday evening this weekend um, at 8pm. The link will be in our Patreon page. And also before that, we're going to be recording the latest episode of our exclusive patrons podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. Now, we do loads of different things on our second podcast. You know, it's a bit more free-flowing than this. We don't edit it. You know, we do a different theme every time. The most recent one was a full hour all about the Sega Mega Drive and our memories and talking about... Was it an hour?
2: Was it it like an hour 40 in the end or something like that?
0: Actually, I think it was probably a bit longer, actually. (laughs) Um, Just talking about all the mad add-ons that the Mega Drive had and, you know, going back into our memories of it, too. And we also do uh, alternate months. We do a series called The Retro Years. So this weekend, we're going to be recording a full special all about the year 2001. So we're going to be jumping in the DeLorean going back 20 years. We've already been prepping for this, and there's so much happened in that year.
1: Oh, man, like installing Windows XP. I've been, um, you know, using iTunes for the
0: first time. Spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Plugging plug in my iPod. <laughs> yeah, first iPod came out, the original Xbox, the GameCube as well. So it's going to be a really interesting one, I think. And obviously we're going to be talking about movies and music and culture and what we were doing back in 2001. So if you want to dive into the DeLorean with us and travel back 20 years, make sure you check out the latest episode of our patrons' exclusive podcast, The Retro Hour After hours you also get the normal podcast early most weeks you get it ad free as well so really the reason you're supporting us on patreon is just to keep the show going you know think of it as a little tip jar and it'll help us keep it coming out every single friday and of course you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming the retro hour hall of fame like this week a big thank you jorgen Jacobson, nor gamer
2: rob schneider
0: full install and sean allen who all made donations into our Patreon. That is massively appreciated. Thank you so much for keeping this podcast going. And if you'd like to join them, all the details for our Patreon, you'll find on our website at theretrohour.com. All right, next, we're going to get some amazing stories, of course, talking about the past, but also the future of the demo scene as well with two of our favourite demo producers, Tobias and Life, otherwise known as Melkor and No Name, from How Job. next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to The Retro Hour Podcast and it is time for this week's very special guests. And it's been a while since we did an episode delving deep into the demo scene and it's always something that we find fascinating, you know, being lifelong fans of those incredible productions from back in the day that still continues today at massive events all around the world, including Evoke Demo Party that we'll talk more about very soon with our special guest this week. Hello, Tobias and Life from How Job. Hello, guys. Hello, happy to be here.
3: Hello, everyone.
0: Great to have you joining us now. Um, before we delve deep into kind of the work that you guys have done on the demo scene and continue to do today, it's always nice to kind of find out, you know, your geek credentials and kind of what got you into it originally. Talking to you, Tobias, what's kind of your experience in computers from the beginning? Then, what kind of got you into
4: it at first? so i think the really first moment was games definitely i mean even before stumbling over the cracker scene in the neighbor neighbor neighboring town to copy some discs but really it was like centipede i think in primary school so at a friend's house so i really when i saw that i immediately fell in love Uh, so yeah and what about your life
3: yeah we had uh, one of those uh, pong tv telegames consoles at home so i was uh, the youngest child of three and so that's how I got nurtured uh, into computer uh, graphics and games and so forth. And um, there was some Galaga arcade machine in the milk bar during uh, our holidays uh, that uh, took one mark or the other. And then later on, we got some Commodore 16 at home, which I shared with my sister. And then we finally got uh, a machine uh, for myself, a C64, with. Disk Drive and Speedos must have been around 87 or so.
1: Well, you guys are both in the demo group, Hal job, and um, your scene names, I might as well tell everybody. Um, Melkor uh, is yours, Tobias, and No Name is yours, Life, as well. And you must have both been kind of fascinated by computer graphics. What, what were the graphics that really caught your attention, even if they were on, like, television or other mediums?
4: i think by the time so it was really i mean everybody i think was impressed by what was going on on music television and so i think everybody during those days was Hoping to create something on on 64, uh, especially then Amiga, like the early uh, demos from Spaceballs, for example, which were kind of recreating this de- this this music video style. That was later on in the early 90s. So I think that was a very huge influence by the time to to have this synesthetic experience from music videos, but created via computers.
3: Yeah, if I might chip in, I think. For me, you know, coming from the Gallagher machine in, in the milk bar in my in my holiday when I was a kid, I wanted to have something like that at home. So I was craving to get the Commodore and and get the tapes at first and and play them on my telly. Can't really tell that the pong machine had a, a lasting graphical impact on me but of course that was also fascinating as a, a very small child and and then i i enjoyed the cracktros on my c64 to be honest i mean i i, I and i i stumbled across the occasional disk which seemed to have cracktros on them but no games so that was a bit strange or or just music i remember Especially I had something with the Michael Jackson music, this move criminal made by Charles uh, Deenen of Maniacs of Noise in, in around 88. And I was really fascinated by that. And I thought, what's that? So uh, I think the next year I visited a friend who had an Amiga 500. I still didn't have one at that time. And uh, I adored the Cracktros on, on that machine as well. So there was something from a World of Wonders, which had wonderful music, uh, cracktro for California games. And, and he recognized that I liked that. And he told me, if if you like this, uh, you will especially like that. And so he went to another room, got some disc and, and showed me uh, my first demo that I recognized as being a demo because I've been told it is something like that. And that was... Uh, the uh, Doc Demo Two music disc from from '89, and, and since then I'm kind of hooked on this marvelous machine that is the Amiga and its creative use in the demo scene ever since.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that you're mentioning that because I mean, the C64 times, I mean were also the time of when I think I was watching more the crack trolls in front of the games and was wondering who are these ludicrous names like Dynamic Duo, et cetera, and I, I later on learned about, but the more active phase was definitely starting with Amiga and, and from then on, of course, when we also were starting uh, the group, or yeah, many groups were started by the time on Amiga.
0: Yeah, I mean, it looks so intriguing, didn't it? The fact that you could get these these incredible... Graphical demos and scrolling text, and you know, these recognizable mod tracks as well that they squeeze into just you know, the, the boot sectors of floppy disk before the games. Um, what was kind of your introduction into the demo scene then? How, from just watching these crack throws, did you actually get into a group and get started?
4: On my end, it was really driving to a neighborhood neighboring village where there was the rumor there was someone who had a good source of computer games. So, all the, all the school kids. So that was near Paderborn, where, where also later on an important university for, for IT was. And many demosceles started studying there and came there actually in that area. And there was this person who had like always like 18, 90 discs of games and uh, they were, so in the early that was early 90s so 90 yeah 91 90 1990 maybe and uh, basically he was in the demo scene or in the cracker scene at that time and had kind of this abandonments with school kids where everybody was driving there once a month copying a lot of games and then uh, driving home again and uh, that group, uh, so the person from that group, was uh, g- the group was Agnostic Front by the time, which was a crack group, and I joined soon later. And because I was also in the Gothic scene, and they were also a Gothic noise industrial kind of group, and it, that really overlaps oftentimes, that you have uh, music um, identification and demo scene identification. That's why how job, by the way, because it's really a noise industrial group from the mid-90s.
0: What about your life? How did you get into it?
3: i think i was a bit of a, a lone uh, rider at home at first so i didn't find anyone that really shared the passion so i kind of got on making my own stuff uh, <laughs> i bought uh, amos uh, the game creator uh, to have a more flexible programming environment on the amiga before i learned assembler so i i spent some some time on on that and and went to local bulletin board systems downloaded stuff uh, didn't really have any contact and uh I mean, there have been guys in our neighborhood, but I was too shy to really approach them. I mean, the, the Red Sector guys that made the famous mega demo, they were only 20 kilometers away from me, but kind of they seemed to be too high up to to send them something and um, they probably wouldn't have answered. You never know, but I mean, they got tons of uh, letters back in the day and in response to their uh, productions. And also on my schoolyard, they had the Special Brothers, which was another uh, big group um, of the time, and uh, I chatted them up, but I, I, I couldn't really speak to the coder. I was too impressed, so I spoke to the graphics guy, which was kind of the wrong decision in a way. I <laughs> uh, should have just asked the, the coder and maybe get an afternoon lesson or something. But anyway, uh, at some point on a bulletin board system, I downloaded um, a slideshow made by students or school kids, and it says uh, sci-fi slideshow, not bad, Made by sector seven i downloaded that um i found out they live in the next village i was super happy Phoned them up and ever since then uh, i've been teamed up with them and did the demo first for sector seven and then uh, after we made the first proper demo we joined with our job in 97.
4: Yeah, it's kind of like an MMOs, right? So if in the, in the early, in this first moment, you find someone you really resonate and then join a group, and then you're really stuck to a game for a long time. If you don't do that, then maybe you will switch something else. For me, that was really Triple X from our job. who's was pretty well known in the scene till today.
1: Well, you mentioned BBSs there, and that was kind of the pre-social media. And uh, I guess that's how you guys communicated. But Did you get together for parties and like how big were these initial demo parties and what activities took place there?
4: I think the big thing in the 90s especially was always going to the party in Denmark. That was usually during Christmas or then, of course, going to Mecca Symposium um, and later on Breakpoint and later on Revision. That's always on Easter. But in the 90s, that was maybe 2000, I guess. No name. What do you think? I can't. I'm not sure about the numbers, but I guess it was 2000 people in the north of Denmark, right in the winter, in the dark where everybody drove from all over Europe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. absolutely right.
4: It was kind of a very open minded space at the time because people came really for copying everything.
3: I learned about it from the magazines, yeah? So, I, you know, we we all had our magazines back in the day. We still have some today. And they had some reviews about demo scene events and uh, the the current ones. And so I wanted to go to the party ever since I read about it. Must have been 92, 93. And I I finally made it to my first demo scene party in 94. First, it was a local, well, national uh, World of Commodore 94 party, uh, a mind that... uh, (laughs) Commodore went into demise in 1994, so it was more like a, a morning thing. And uh, but but still, we had a party and uh, decided to go to the party '94 in Denmark at that year. And I think it it was even more, Toby. I think it was like three and a half or four thousand people. Yeah, it was it absolute madness. I mean, they filled trade fair halls full of computer lines. It was absolutely mind-boggling. And you 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 felt like you were coming home as as kind of a nerdy kid back in the day. I mean, all kinds of events were happening. Uh, competitions, of course, that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to be part of the scene, being recognized, being on, on, on the big screen at some point. But that was something for the big boys, maybe. And so there were also other competitions. Uh, I remember when I entered the TP4... Uh, There was some hard disk throwing going on, and I was kind of walking through a big hall, and a hard disk was flying by. And I was like, wee, it's a bit crazy over here.
4: It's true. And it's, it's, it's also super important always. If you imagine these big halls of people, it's really, and there was actually no LAN. Few people have been playing, but there was no co- competition games going on. It was really everybody was there chatting around the competitions around how, to, how, whoever created an amazing demo party before and how that might be surpassed This co- on this competition. And of course, catching up with friends on groups and also this, What's important about the Zimmer scene is always this competition meets community. So you have, you look what the others are doing, but you are also friends with everybody. So that's really this, these two mindsets very largely intertwined. And that's super important to imagine. If you go to a demo party till today, it has always these two parts, community and competition. And it was in the nineties like that. And today it's the same.
1: I, I, I love that you mentioned hard this throwing because I love like the wild, kind of competitions and the more unusual stuff that happens. Like uh, I've been to ones where they have non-dominant hand drawing and uh, (laughs) photography. What, what weird kind of stuff have you seen like that?
3: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) since i'm already laughing i mean i i won floppy disks rowing so 3.5 inch floppy disk rowing i could really spin it nicely like you did with a stone on a lake and then i I think it went 90 or 100 meters or something at some party in holland or belgium i can't really remember there was something in artificial ponds if i remember at, at mecca
4: yeah, and it's also super important. Um, there's always the wild competition. So that's like a competition category, which is actually no category. Everything is allowed. So you can enter a quiz or you enter a video or you can enter um, sending a demo on a, a via satellite into space, which uh, TSI did recently. So it could be so many things and people get each year different uh, until today, uh, if different ideas, what it can be. So that that's, um, can be very crazy.
0: I mean, if people want to get like an overview of what it was like, there are videos on YouTube. There are a few of the party I've seen on there. And like you guys mentioned, then it just looks like a massive hall, you know, filled with mainly teenagers and, you know, people in the early 20s maybe. And I know there's disc-based magazines like Grapevine that are still available. People can read the show reports and stuff. I mean, are there any kind of favourite parties or memories that kind of stand out, you know, for you in particular?
4: I think for at least for me, so what influenced me for the whole life was really this you are living on a countryside somewhere and you're suddenly part of a community which is all around at least Europe, but for us it felt like the world. So there was no Schengen and there was no Euro, there was no nothing and I was like sitting this first time at home in front of the BBS in a terminal and then another person in Sweden is answering on a hack hect- I mean or it's not a hacked line, but let's say a, ha- a, a com- telephone line where you didn't have to pay for for the long-term, long-distance fees. And that was this moment which I'll never forget because it's, it's always, I guess, yeah, that's why I'm also doing conferences as a professional these days. I, I was always drawn by the community by bringing people together who create awesome stuff and uh yeah so my answer will always probably be in that direction and uh, no name how, how was it for you
3: yeah i always wanted to see the the great new demos and uh, obviously also intros and, and graphics and so forth uh, so i preferred the parties that had the great releases and uh, of course the best ones were where we then also had a release and and maybe even one but th- that's not the main point so i i like the big parties and for me it was parties like uh, the party back then, and the German Easter party tradition, which started in uh, in 1995, if I remember correctly, some uh, uh, symposium and later Mecca symposium, um, yeah, more parties like that. So where where the great stuff happened. So for me personally, uh, a big highlight was. Uh, uh, winning a demo competition at Mecca Symposium 1999 or 2K minus as, one, as they called it. That that was great. So for me, always about uh, seeing new production and, and then speaking to people. Do you
1: think like the demo scene, uh, the creativity in there and the coding actually feeds into kind of wider computer technology and uh, influences some game development?
3: Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say it's also mutually beneficial i mean at first it has been inspired by games and and wider technology obviously because demos of something are demos of technology and that was there before the demo scene and and also the genesis of crack is very closely related to having computer games available as software that can be copied without having uh, any kind of uh, quality loss yeah maybe even a quality improvement with trainer or something like that and then on the other way around, you've then at some point got uh, well-versed demo that are looking for a job and, of course, would like to apply it in the domain that they like. And, you know, maybe they become game developers. That's kind of one possible circle of life in, in that little habitat.
4: Yeah. And the interesting part is also you can see, so when when we will talk a little bit later about that, about this UNESCO art of coding thing. But the interesting part is you can see how much, how many people have been influenced by the scene. If you looked, uh, when we announced like there was a success in Finland and Germany, Hacker News picked it up, which is a big News outlet in Silicon Valley especially, and suddenly we had like more than three four hundred thousand views on the, on a tweet for account which there were only. Uh, 200 followers or so so and many there were so many comments on hacker news how the demo scene has actually inspired people to go into tech and coding and uh, in all different directions could be security could be uh, creative coding of course shaders for sure engine development in game studios you always find demos scene is there so it's it's kind of this little bit hidden hidden group especially in the scandinavian game development um, industry where there's many seniors who started stuff and are still around i'd say it's uh interesting
3: also that we like to stay in our niche a little bit although there's these outreach activities and the, the cultural recognition activities in a way we are culturing cultivating our little niche and and uh, broadcast chrome flowers sets we put in one of our demos and uh, you may go away and do something else but uh, we won't follow
0: I mean you know you mentioned crack earlier on and to me you know as someone that was just you know I didn't attend the tender parties in the early 90s I was just reading about them you know on on disc mags and stuff but it always did seem to me like the demo scene And piracy kind of went hand in hand, you know, even watching those um, YouTube videos, the kind of the X copy bong is going off in the background all the way through it. I mean, would you agree that kind of piracy and the demo scene were like intertwined at the time? And how do you think they kind of separated and it kind of moved on from piracy?
4: I think there's no 100 percent. So, yeah, first, yes. There, it has been largely. I mean, the demo scene was the cracker scene. I think so. The the demo scene started as the cracker scene. So in the in the eighties, hundred percent. In the nineties, it overlapped still in big chunks. And I think everybody will tell you a little bit different story. I can say in the German scene around myself, from ninety four on. That was also when we created, uh, co-founded like Howjob. From ninety four on, like. Uh, legal prosecution was much stronger that um, people were raided, et cetera, like um, their houses were checked for copies, people were drawn to courts, et cetera. And I think that's – I rem- remember CBIT 94 at, as one moment where lots of people switched from the crack uh, – cracker groups to demo groups or let's say they were founding demo groups which were completely on the legal side and then there were other groups which stayed in the cracker scene and that le- then i think yeah over the 90s i think 95 percent, i would say is then completely demo scene so it slowly went down, but I think mid nineties uh, and 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 there's also technology technological reason because um, demos got bigger and bigger and bigger, and there was of course no time no space on the boot block anymore to show all, always even bigger effects and so when when demos took over all full discs which was really especially with amiga so uh, early 90s yeah, let's say 93 94 that really started uh, uh, big time that was also when it was there was no g- correct game actually after the the intro or the demo because yeah it was just standing for itself so that's two reasons
3: yeah i think on the c64 I didn't own an original. On on the C16, everything was original. Obviously, the Ponca Soul was original. And on the Amiga, I didn't really care for the copies anymore. It was easy to get, but I wanted to own the digital stuff that I loved. So I bought all the great games that I wanted to have. So for me, for example, Tariq in 1, 2, and 3, uh, I have all the originals, and I, <laughs> I'm i really happy that I have them. Um, mm. And for, for the Cracktros and stuff like that, that was the interesting subculture that i wanted to be part of somehow and um they were just getting bigger and bigger i mean they were escaping the boot block very very soon mostly they were around 30 40 kilobytes which is maybe why we have these size limits Uh, For some of the intros, around 40 kilobytes or 64 kilobytes. So you would also hear a little bit of tuck, tuck, tuck. And each of those would have been 11 kilobytes uh, on the Amiga, if I remember correctly. And it was just more interesting. I mean, you can only play so many games, I guess. And at some point, you want to switch over from being a consumer to becoming a producer. At least hopefully, not everyone, but but some people want to. and, And that's what interested me.
1: Were there a kind of set of rules and ethics in the demo scene and uh, especially regarding like people ripping off other people's artworks or productions?
4: It's a good question because I think the ethics, I mean, what we always say and what's really true is the demo scene is anarchic, and self-organized means you can't really say what the demo scene does or did in a... So there could be cases, but in a general could be cases of like copying stuff or playing around. But usually the mindset has been create your own stuff, um, pushing the boundaries to create better stuff or what others did. Um, and I guess that's why also it was always a little bit looked down for towards people who use demo makers, at least in the 90s. Um, because, um, yes, the artwork was there, but not the craft behind. And so I would say being original is a super high value and, uh, pushing the boundaries as well. And, um. I think the demo scene had also a long, long, long time, uh, this saying of, um, open source kills the competition, <laughs> which is, of course, not what, what is the mindset these days. So people are really releasing their source codes from time, uh, nowadays oftentimes, but it doesn't have to be, but oftentimes really, uh, at the, at those days, it was really, let's see what we can do better than, than these other guys. Uh, oftentimes it was guys. And then the conversation in the community is actually bringing each other together. So if you dare to ask the other coders and griffishants and musicians, then it's super open and super uh, welcome and inclusive. But you ha- you had to have this, um you had to step over your comfort zone and to reach out. And actually, but if you were at a demo party, then it's, everybody was actually always saying, yeah, then it's super welcoming. Um But it's not that, welcoming like or it wasn't that welcoming like let's say the indie scene was in that sense because it was more based on competition and uh and that changed over the decades then
0: yeah i always remember reading about you know like kind of the obviously had the elites who made all the you know the top demos and then they'd often call you know people that used for example you know amos basic to make demos like the lamers i remember reading that you know they, they did seem like a, a definite hierarchy there
3: oh yes i mean and when we try to enter the scene i i was a bit late to the party i was you know not an early scener uh, and and the elite as you as you mentioned uh, were already dominating uh the scene it was very hard to get recognized i mean there were the big dick smacks and you would release your first demo and maybe it wouldn't even be mentioned or it would be mentioned by looking down on it and that, that was no fun in the 90s that's a lot more welcoming nowadays and for rules, as as Toby said, I mean, yeah, it's it's it was about being creative, having fun, cooperating, and showing your stuff. And the productions matter, whatever your productions are. But it ideally should be your productions. Everything that that you try to present as your production, and it wasn't really, has always been frowned upon, uh, rightfully. But uh, well, if you had something that was worth showing. You would get involved, enter it into some kind of competition, socialize with everyone, tell them that you've done great stuff and they can check it on the big screen very, very soon. And and you watch the compo together and then afterwards you're sharing a beer, you you get feedback and then you
4: repeat. I mean, the mindset of the groups was also largely different. So how job was more we had. I don't know. At one moment, I guess more than a hundred people in the group. And we, we had this recognition, yes, to win a lot of competitions, but there were also many party members just joining because we were more party group. Then there were other groups which were super hierarchical and. Um, and main, all, everything in between. And it's really interesting to see how the identity was taken super seriously in the beginning when someone joined, so switched groups from one to another. And and nowadays, and also the, uh, for a while, now it's totally normal that people are members of many groups and switch uh, switch gears, uh, even reinvent brands and names all the time to play around with it. So it got... Um, It was always playful, but the style of playful maybe changed.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I just have to chip in there. Uh, My dear friend, JCS, hello, with with whom I started my Amiga journey. Uh, He was also uh, um, a co-member of uh, ScoopX at the time, which was one of those hierarchically organized groups. And I remember internal letters that he showed me, which weren't directed at him, but at other members who weren't that active at the moment and they contain messages like a oh, warning, uh, contact the management at once. And we just didn't want to be a group like that or be in a group like that. So, yeah, definitely more on, on the fun side of things.
4: Yeah. That's a, yeah, it's true. And that it was even picked up by scientists. Uh, so, Gleb Albert, one actually a demo scener who was also writing a lot of uh, research on the scene, he actually uh, published a paper about how – how the early, especially the cracker groups were even in reestablishing kind of corporate structures. So they were it was RSI dot Inc or um, so even names and corporate structures, um, while even in in illegal illegality, I don't know what's the word uh in illegal um, status illegality yeah, <laughs> illegality yeah, yeah. yes <laughs> thank you and i mean there's much to be said what what um yeah what's special about this moment because before there was just the book age right and we were just making up stuff while it was invented and uh we had no idea what what in what special moment in time this was all happening
0: well, I know that the, um, obviously the Commodore 64 and the Amiga, you know, were two, you know, the dominant platforms in the demo scene. But I mean, were there any other representations at these parties? Like, you know, was the Atari ST, did that have like a demo scene that was there? Was, you know, the Acorn Archimedes and there's some stuff on that? And I've even read, you know, obviously when the IBM PC became more dominant, did you start to see more PC demos at parties, you know, from the mid 90s?
3: Oh, absolutely yes. I mean, yeah, all, all of those machines, maybe less the Acorn, which wasn't really big in in on the continent, as you say, in Europe. Uh, which which is a great machine. Um, I saw one when I was an exchange student in in England. Um, uh, all of them got got great demos, and uh, we've we've seen PC demos, we've seen Atari ST demos. All the time. At at first, maybe you you want to stay in your swim lane somehow and you don't really like to look so much to the others, but that soon changed. And and we absolutely loved PC demos as well. I mean, I remember we were standing in our Amiga corner uh, at a big party. must have been Mecca Symposium, I don't know which year. And they were showing a demo show with with a famous PC demo called... uh, wonders of the world no stars wonders of the world by noon and it was magnificent and everyone else was a bit abu oh, that's pc and we're just like are you mad and giving standing ovations because it was just so great and we wanted to be <laughs> as good as those guys uh, which had the slightly more powerful machine and having really great artists great graphics great musics it's uh cross-fertilizing and uh yeah very very inspiring to see other machines
0: I do remember reading as well that some people would get a bit snobby about, you know, doing demos on a PC. And even today, you know, they're like, uh, it's easy enough doing it via direct decks or something, but you're not banging the metal. So it's not quite as cool, that kind of thing.
4: It's true. It's still both out there. So I mean, some people are creating demos on hacked um, washing machines or so to have the pure metal work still there, even literally. Then there's definitely, of course, the retro scene, which was never retro because we just continued doing stuff on C64 and Amiga. So for us, it was always there. And then there's, of course, the PC scene, which was, let's say pushing the boundaries in different directions where yeah of course you could switch the graphics card and then it wasn't that easy to compare anymore how the excellence of someone is but yeah maybe things got much more aesthetically or there were different routes of um, creativity to explore let's say I mean which I'm not saying is that Amiga NPC C64 is it's not aesthetic.
3: i I would i would add that um the pc because it has so much power and it's really great yeah i have pc as well of course and i i also program on the pc or i I did program on the pc um that you want to artificially limit it because um, the production capability that you have to bring up with your team or on your own is just mind-boggling you you are not a triple a team you are not 80 people you cannot compete anymore with with triple A game studio, so you have to artificially limit what you want to do or you will be completely lost and that's I think why we saw the introduction of size limits and other kind of artificial limits I mean on the pc nowadays uh, more recently in more recent years the size coding of two hundred and fifty six bytes or even less became a thing uh, on the Amiga. Back when I started, that wasn't so big. I mean, an intro was a 40k intro uh, because that was the site of the crack tro, and maybe they came up with bootblock intros or 4k intros and that was small, but the size coding and other artificial limitations really is what uh, drives the PC scene at the moment, I guess.
1: Which demo groups really impacted and kind of changed the demo scene and how? Uh,
3: Apologies to everyone who I have might have forgotten and wanted to mention in the first place, but uh, from a technical and aesthetical perspective over time. So I've mentioned Red Sector before for the Mega demo. I think that was a very important release on the Amiga. And I, can't, I can, can only really talk about Amiga. There's other great groups, but uh, I'll stay with my Amiga opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it featured top, top music. It had a sampled speech intro, just like the then- famous blood money game by dma design and so they they made that uh so they were as good as a commercial title yeah they also made an an early tool the the red sector demo maker which you could buy and and do stuff and yeah play around with that then there was um, a mental hangover by uh, scoopax which introduced the the trackmo concept so like a, a continuous disc loader from, uh, without uh, using the operating system. It also had continuous music and it would change the scenes on the fly so you could have more effects and it would be uh, more tightly timed to the music and it would be a more condensed experience. So they introduced that concept. Um, as to be said, many great demos existed. So Enigma by Phenomena, Uh, Hardwired, Chronics and the Silence, Desert Dream by Kefrins, that's all really great stuff. Uh, You had technical wizards like uh, Sanity, Virtual Dreams, or the Electronic Knights, and then you had design groups, I would say, or people who made an impact on design, maybe not even being a design group in in the first place, but you know, um, Budbrain, Mega Demo 1 and 2, I mean, they were hated back then in in the demo scene, and we absolutely loved it as the consumers... uh, but brain demos are, are, are cool demos. Um, Melon design, yeah, lots of famous, very influential French style, as, as Toby called it. And then there was uh state-of-the-art, nine fingers, fluid 2D motion vectors, uh, rotoscoping, and so forth. And, and then all our good friends since the Aga times uh, of the mid-'90s. Um, Scala, always pushing the limits, Abyss and Lemon Point. Great demos, great tools, unique, Ephedrina, always great demos. And uh, our friends in Ghost Town, who are master artists.
0: That was like the audio version of the scrolly text shout outs. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs>
3: of course. I mean, it's our tradition. You're speaking with us. So that's what we do. We can't type scrolls. Got text. to be done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Tobias, I know um, today, or you know, pre COVID at least, and hopefully again in the future, you're um, organizing the Evoke party. So, tell us about the demo scene today and how does it differ from the demo scenes back in the early 90s?
4: I mean, yeah. So, I mean, we, of course, at Evoke, we are a huge team, which is running. So, we're running the demo party for 20 years now. And everybody's doing like their small part. I'm more like on the speakers and concept side and bringing people together for conversations. What's the difference? I think it's slowly getting more diverse, it's uh, more open. Minded in that sense that c sixty four scene and amiga scene and p c scene is more mingling to it uh, with each other um I mean the big differences are of we are getting older as well that's also a challenge as well to be managed because we are living breathing culture where always new people are joining, but the scene is of course also getting older each year a little bit and so differences are it's uh, the big thing is really its continuity so when we actually applied to unesco and mentioned started like this whole initiative um out of coding to uh enlist the demo scene uh, as part of immaterial culture, cultural heritage in uh, in, in yeah, europe at, at the moment that was really an important part that it's a living breathing culture which has its own rules its own logics, etc. But it has also heritage and history, which is continued and uh, always renewing a bit. So there is change. Uh, There's always new parties coming. There's always new groups uh, starting. Um, But it has also, for the digital space, for 30 years or more, almost 40, um, it has a extremely strong continuity. Um and then it's of course what what's the big thing is that the scene when it started was really like um demos could do what no one else could do oftentimes, so visually they were much more impressive than the games after uh the intro or demo uh, at the time, and then with the whole explosion of the games and real time space in terms of engines and real real time that's of course a different perspective now, so now it's um it's many people it's a space for many people who work professionally in digital in any kind of way and oftentimes they do stuff in a demo scene just for the sake of it just for the fun of it just for actually doing something without sense which is just for their own enjoyment and the community and whatever you aim for so i think that's that's a big thing that the competition was a big driver and nowadays it's um it's still important but uh it's also part being part of this community and sharing this unique time uh time actually in digital history together because there's yeah you can't, it's like, it's like if you're an old World of Warcraft player, I mean, before Vanilla came back, you couldn't talk about the old days because they were gone. There was updates and updates and updates and you couldn't talk about with people about how it was in at that time. And that's of course something which is also driving the scene, like sharing these days.
0: Interestingly, now that demographic breakdown. Is it kind of mainly, you know, us guys that were into it back in the 90s, like, you know, people who are 35 and over? or Are you seeing younger people becoming interested in it as well?
4: Definitely, definitely. I mean, at Evoke, for example, we have a newcomer award each year and there's never a scarcity to find a group. Um, so Evoke has roughly 500 people usually uh, coming. So it's... Well, our second biggest, I think, party in Germany, um, with an international audience. And we always have like awards for people who are first time releasing or rec- to give them some extra recognition to be seen and actually also feel welcome. And, um, it's, it's also, and that's one of the reasons why we do this initiative out of coding, um. Also, to make people aware, there is this scene which is actually self so it's limiting itself for a purpose and self limiting for creative purpose. That's actually super old. It's really like if you think about text, like we are writing sonnets for four or five hundred years since the yeah, mid century uh, medieval times. And so it's always in the same form or think of origami. So self limitation can be really a nice driver of um, curiosity of creativity of bringing people together and that's why i'm also not really worried about like the future and that that draws people always more in think about people who are coming from media arts for example and get interested um, but there is of course also challenges in that sense that that the community has been historically pretty pretty male pretty european that's something which is also changing uh, definitely now these days. So, and actually, even families are usually, if you come to evoke these days, there's lots of uh, people bringing the next generation, actually, and we have a kindergarten there. Wow, yeah. demo families. <laughs> I yeah, don't I would like would to, to
3: chip in on the family side, actually. Uh, so all of what Toby said, plus uh, we've got uh, kids entering the scene, kids of demo sceners. Uh, we've seen that a couple of times. So uh, Virgil, uh, one of our musician friends, uh, has a son, Slimy, and he entered the scene. And I think the same also happened with a, a young French group. I think one of the fathers is, is a famous graphic artist. So, yeah, that's it's what you admire. It's Sometimes it's the technology that you want to play with, and sometimes it's what you've been shown how to do stuff. So kind of family aspects.
1: Well, Tobias, um, what is the Art of Coding initiative then? And uh, why do you think it's been so successful?
4: So the Art of Coding is an initiative we founded like with together with Andreas Lange from Computer Games Museum, who was a co-founder of the Computer Games Museum in Berlin. It's like an initiative to... Enlist or inscribe, they say, the demo scene as first digital culture into UNESCO cultural heritage. So UNESCO, usually all of us know as the buildings like Stonehenge, etc., cetera, uh, with uh, preservation projects around them. And they have also lists of immaterial cultural heritage. So this is like traditions, arts and crafts, which are usually so in the old world before we started, um, are centering around rural kinds of r- dances, rituals, carnival in Cologne, for example, is such a, of course, tr- important tradition and um could be also uh, and could be also like certain style of printing. And the reason why we started was kind of a game so why not trying to challenge UNESCO with the demo scene mindset because no one has done it before and see where we how far we get in asking this question about what what is tradition what is uh, skills what is craft in a digital sphere and as the demo scene is completely non-commercial um, it was really and self Yeah, self-motivated. Everybody does. If you look at the definitions of a culture in terms of UNESCO terms, it actually pretty works pretty well together. Um, but usually they focused on something like, uh, let's say, how is knowledge traversed or traditioned over the generations? So we had to tweak some of the, um, arguments when we applied for, for in Finland or in Germany for the national inscription. So um, we had to tweak some of the um, rules in a sense and say, yeah, well, in the digital space, 30 or 40 years is actually much more than just one generation. And the knowledge is tra- traditioned via conversation at demo parties where people gather and uh, converse about the latest demo effects etc and, and honestly that's true i believe in that so yeah that's like this initiative it's really a website a campaign and um unesco that takes all a little bit it uh, takes a while so it means you have to apply in each country separately and if we have applications in more than a certain amount of countries together. So now we have been successful in Germany and also Finland, that we are now national cultural heritage, which is totally amazing. But we are still looking for maybe two or three more countries within the next two years and then we can bundle all these applications a successful one and say let's go for the for the international application so that's an administrative process because unesco is an organ of the nation states so it's like yeah a big administrative uh, institution and uh, yeah, it's an interesting challenge on one hand to have the demo scene, which is completely, of course, um, the the opposite of actually this big organization and it's decentralized, it's small, it's uh, agile, it's uh, anarchic um, and bringing these two worlds together. That's interesting and fun.
1: It's amazing. So kind of the more places that accept... Uh, this is a digital culture with UNESCO, will then lead to international recognition. And uh, what could that lead to? Could it be like preservation, funding, um, exhibitions? Um- yeah,
4: that's super important. So w- when we are successful, no one gets money. So that's an important part first. But of course, if now in Germany, we are starting the discussions probably at next evoke What people think we could do, like because our aim is of course to um, preserve democene heritage. So the museums are super interested in this and to support because. If the demo scene is, of course, on these lists, then there's a higher chance to, to apply for grants for your own projects, but also for museums could also, um, probably be much more easy set up, uh, if you go to a country or your region, et cetera, and ask, Hey, I have this program, I have this plan, um, and, and for, for fundraising. So there were four reasons really to help, um, a, it's a challenge so demo scenes like that I mean that was more to tackle the the, the ego of demo sceners. then to help demo scene organizers party organizers raise funds for regional funds etc or spon- sponsorships maybe um, the third is what you said like this really preservation and making sure that stuff really gets preserved in museums in exhibitions that exhibitions are there maybe also permanently and where can it lead to so Demo scene things, what I what I said, better parties, but also maybe more workshops. Let's say let's create workshops for getting into the scene. Let's create new competitions. Let's create a congress. Let's whatever people wanna do, they have much more opportunity to um to make this more vibrant. And also and then not last but not least, outreach to the more people. So that's why it's also so great to be on this podcast. uh, The more people hear about it, that it's still around and actually people are coming back or new people are joining. So really there's so many people who were in the scene or knew at least the old tractors. And nowadays uh, they think, oh, that's what? That's still around. Amazing. And they start doing that now.
1: You know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see an international ambassador of the demo scene who just goes around and makes cool computer coding and kind of changes everything <laughs> that that would be really fantastic
4: yeah and i mean honestly like growing up in the 90s and 80s it's also to see which doors can we open then for a broader discourse so of course gaming is much much bigger uh open source is much bigger there's so many things so many digital cultures and communities which are there, but we have also to tweak, let's say, our communities. So, of course, we have challenges how digital works, um, where, where there, in terms of inclusion, diversity, elitism, etc., where people. I mean, we are now lots of lot. Many of us are older. We have families. We have kids. So, I really believe to get rid of this toxicity in the web that um, that. Let's say the conversation between the digital generations uh, could be also helpful. Maybe we find different solutions, but that's a bigger, different story. Uh, but I really hope for that, that we can get these our digital communities a little bit nicer in the future as well again.
0: Well, obviously over the last year, um, I know a lot of the demo parties have been virtual events, you know, streaming on YouTube and Twitch. Do you guys think the demo scene party is going to return even bigger and better after COVID, when we can all finally fly and get together again?
3: Uh, oh, absolutely. It's going to be such a big reunion when everyone is finally back at a party with some kind of release. And um, as far as I know, there's already different parties planned in, in different countries. So in the, in the UK and in Germany and, and Hungary. And uh, Tobias might even know some more.
4: Yeah, for August, it's a little bit on the a little bit tight because Gamescom and everything is online and usually Evoke is right before Gamescom. So we are still in discussions. It's not yet disclosed, but we, yeah, we will probably do an online something this year and then come back even stronger next year. And I'm 100% sure because. With UNESCO, but also with Evoke, with, uh, with a with we have really learned. We say we are a digital culture, but in the end, we are culture, and we really crave so much to come together. Online is great, and digital is great, but in the end, we need to sit together to bond, to share, and we really, really crave it. And so, um, I'm hundred percent sure it will be even bigger.
0: Yeah and that's great to hear. I mean I know friendships always been a massive part of the scene and the passion that you guys have still got for it is you know incredible to hear. And I hope that we can make it out to a party like Evoke, you know hopefully when um, when we can travel again. We'd love to hook up and kind of see what's going on there. It all sounds really exciting. I mean is there any kind of productions that you guys have got planned that we should look out for over the next few months?
3: Yeah, we're we're working on something. Don't really like to speak too much about it before it's done. So something old, something new, something Borrowed something blue, maybe. Um, Something worth mentioning, I think, is that uh, Hellfire and me, we released our HowJob Amiga demo framework some time ago, which is made for cross-development on a PC and also on a Mac. Hey, Akama, Uh, which is on GitHub. And maybe we can put the link to the website uh, somewhere next to the podcast and we're planning to document that even further so it has more features already than are documented and um, you know people expect the code uh, to be documented so um, there's a lot more stuff in it already and we will update it in the future
4: yeah and regarding art of coding I mean there's definitely uh this we are waiting for feedback from France at the moment and Poland so they are very close to the application so if you got interested in that there's uh the, the website demosceneartofcoding.net um that's the place where you also find the discord we have always the First, Wednesday of the month is really the meetup and where you can join and share if you're curious, if you're an ex scener or also curious to help in other uh, ways. So that's what's happening in the next half year, getting more countries uh, supporting uh, the initiative. And um, regarding Evoke, well, news very soon. And regarding my professional work in conferences and game developer conferences, well, we are all keeping thumbs pressed for the second half of the year that that the stuff is not coming back and that we will also in the industry come be able to come together physically again.
0: Well, guys, it's been incredible hearing some of your memories and also these you know the work that you're doing in the demo scene today. I'll obviously link up um, everything we talked about in our show notes if people want to check out uh, more about the art of coding. Um, that will all be in our show notes and, and on our website, theretrohour.com. Tobias and Life, it's been a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you so much for coming on.
3: Thanks,
4: uh, Dan and Ravi, for having us. Yes, it has been marvelous uh, to share our stories and looking forward to what's coming next. Thank you.